you're here today in spite of what uh, difficulties you may have in your life and braving the elements right now, and I hope that uh, something that we say or we do here this morning will be beneficial and we can uh, all leave here today and say that it was good to have been in the house of the Lord. In John chapter 3, we find the story of a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews. That means he was a member of the Sanhedrin. It was shocking for a person in his position to associate with Jesus. And so he came in secret by night, wanting to avoid any detection. But the important thing is that he came. And he came confessing that he knew Jesus was a teacher who came from God. And then this conversation ensued in which Jesus proclaimed the necessity of being born again, born of water, born of the Spirit. That's a reference to baptism. You had to be born again to enter into the kingdom of God. And then he declares to Nicodemus boldly, openly, the nature of his earthly work. John 3, verse 14, he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. When he talks about being lifted up between heaven and earth, that's an allusion to his death on the cross. Last week, we talked about the importance of looking to the cross, seeing your sin nailed there, seeing the fact that Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. And Jesus makes that point here himself very plainly. His death paid the penalty for us in order that we might have eternal life. He expounds on that in probably the most famous passage in the Bible, the next verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus came into the world that through him the world might be saved. How do we obtain that salvation? How do we appropriate the benefits of that, that great gift of God's love? The passage tells us, by believing in Jesus. Believing in Jesus means salvation. Believing in Jesus means eternal life. We're saved by grace through faith, as the Apostle Paul says. Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 8. And I want to affirm that unequivocally this morning. We are saved by grace through faith. That's the clear teaching of Scripture. We're saved by the grace of God on account of our faith or our belief in Jesus. But with that said, we need to have a clear biblical understanding of what that means. What does it mean to have faith in Jesus? What does it mean to believe in Jesus? What is biblical saving faith? And when we ask that question, I can think of no better example than that offered by Abraham, the father of the faithful. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 4. We read from it a moment ago. But just to sort of 
set the stage here. In this passage, Paul talks about the necessity of Gentiles, or I should say that they don't have the necessity of keeping the law of Moses and of being circumcised. And he makes his case by appealing to the example of Abraham. Romans 4 verse 3, he's actually quoting from Genesis here. He says here, What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham is an example of what it means to be declared just or right by God. And if you follow along with the logic of Paul's argument here, he says that that's not because of his works, but it was due to God's free gift. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Then Paul makes his point. This happened, this counting Abraham's faith as righteousness, happened before he ever received circumcision. Is this blessing then only for them circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. You see the point of all this. Abraham's faith counted to him as righteousness before he was circumcised. That demonstrates to us the basis on which God accepts people. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null, promise void. For the law brings wrath, but where there's no law, there's no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham who is the father of us all. The promise made to Abraham is available to all of his spiritual children. That is, everyone who has faith like Abraham. We should think here of the story of Abraham then. Most of us probably remember Abraham's story and the faith that he demonstrated. We find it beginning in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham was born in the city of Ur, Mesopotamia, around the turn of the second millennium B.C. 
And we find in Genesis 12, beginning in verse 1, the call of God and his response. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him. I don't want us to overlook that this was a tremendous challenge. This meant pulling up his roots from the most advanced civilization of his day to leave everything that he'd known behind his family and his friends and his home and to go off who knows where into the frontier into the wilds into a place that he didn't even know where he was going God just says I'll show you where I'm going to take you and yet it tells us Abram went as the Lord told him he complied with God's call without hesitation. He went first of all to the city of Haran, and then when his father Terah died, he went even further out onto the frontier. He was 75 years old already when he left Haran. And he traveled around the, the fertile crescent, uh, the fertile crescent, rather, uh, that edge of the Arabian desert. He went into the land of Canaan. He went down to the Negev, down there towards Sinai, to Egypt in a time of famine, back to Canaan again. Uh, eventually, he settled at the city of Hebron for about 15 years. And it's at this point we find that God renewed his covenant with him. Chapter 13, verse 14, the Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes, look from the place where you are, northwards and southwards, eastwards and westwards, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. It was also during this period that Abraham was promised an heir, a son. And eventually, when he was a hundred years old, his son Isaac was born to him. Still another 15 years passed. Abraham continued to live there in the south of Canaan. And it was then that God decided to prove him, to test him, by asking him in Genesis 22, verse number 2, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. I can't imagine how difficult a request that was. Those of you who have children, maybe you can uh, wrap your minds around it in some sense, but in spite of its difficulty, Abraham, again, didn't hesitate. He immediately complied. He took Isaac up the mountain. He bound him. He placed him on the altar. He took the knife in his hand. And just as he was about to strike, the angel of the Lord spoke and said, Stop! Don't harm the boy. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham passed the test that God gave him. 
It's no wonder then that he comes down to us as the friend of God, as the father of the faithful. You read through the book of Genesis. Genesis is the book of beginnings. And you find that more space is devoted to telling the story of Abraham than any other figure. Why is that? Why is Abraham so significant? Not only to have that attention devoted to him in Genesis, but all the references to him throughout the rest of Scripture. It's because his life exhibits in the most forceful way possible the basis of the relationship that God seeks with humanity. Abraham demonstrated an unwavering, absolute faith, trust in God. He grew up in a polytheistic society, the city of Ur that I mentioned, one of the most prosperous cities of its day. It had a, a temple, a ziggurat, those stepped Babylonian temples, dedicated to the moon god. And that's the background that Abraham came from. And yet, he trusted fully and completely in the one true God. And when his call came, he didn't hesitate. He complied immediately. And there's no indication, in spite of his stumbles along the way, that he ever wavered from that faith in God, that he ever looked back to those false gods of his youth and of his homeland. Nor did he fail ultimately to be faithful to God, even willing to ultimately offer up his only son to him. His faith is a tremendous example for anyone who would want to follow in his steps. And that takes us back to Romans chapter 4 and the text that was read earlier. The nature of Abraham's faith is especially evident here in Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 17. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Listen to it fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. I want you to see Paul's point clearly here in this passage. Let's work our way backwards through it. I want you to see what he's saying here. In verse number 25, that's what Christ did for us. He was delivered over. He died for us. The benefit of that, what good does Christ's death do? That's verses 23 and 24. It was reckoned to us as righteousness. How do we obtain that benefit? Verse 22. By faith. Okay. So we obtain the benefit of Christ's death through faith. What does that mean? What is faith? 
That's the question we're really seeking to answer. And that's what's at the heart of this passage, verses 19 through 21. And in fact, uh, verse 21, this is my favorite definition of faith in all of the Bible. Somebody ask you what faith is, take them to Romans chapter 4 and verse number 21, where it says that Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Faith is complete, total confidence, trust in the promises of God. The promise we find stated there in verse number 18 that he'd be the father of many nations in verse 17 tells us about the nature of the God who made that promise. Abraham believed in the same God with the same nature, the same faithfulness that Christians do. A God who, as Paul says, could give life to the dead. A God who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. And when your God has that sort of power, you absolutely believe that He can do what He says He's going to do. So Abraham's example shows us that there are three elements to faith. We ask, what is faith? What is biblical saving faith? There's three elements. They involve the intellect, the emotions, the will. There's assent, there's trust, and there is obedience. All three of those are necessary for biblical saving faith. All three of them are evident here in the story of Abraham. He assented to the call of God. He trusted God's promise. And he obeyed him by departing from his country. I want us to briefly examine those three elements in a little bit more detail. First of all, assent. Faith involves acceptance of a truth. That is mental assent to some sort of proposition, some sort of fact claim. In this case, when we're talking about God, it's a proposition about Him. It's God who speaks, in fact. As Paul says in another place in Romans, faith comes by hearing. God's Word is the basis of faith, and we either accept it, we assent to it, or we reject it. So that means that passages like, say, Hebrews 11, verse 6, where the writer says, without faith it's impossible to please him, that's not arbitrary. That's the only way that we can be pleasing to God. The only way to know his will and to know him is to believe what he says. Some statements are so obviously true that you're branded as stupid if you don't accept them. You know, if I tell you that there's a city named Houston, well, everyone knows that. Of course there is. And if you don't accept that, well, then you're an idiot. There's something wrong with you. But other statements are not so clear. They're of a different character. They call for a decision. Religious statements, statements like, there is a God, they fall into that category. It's not that there's no evidence, but the evidence is of a different kind. As the Hebrews writer says, chapter 11, verse 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen. It's of a different nature than saying that there's a city named Houston. And furthermore, these are matters of ultimate concern, matters that you have to take a stand on. If I remain agnostic on whether or not there is a God, and that's the proposition, there is a God, and well, you know, I don't know, not sure. You've taken a stand on it right there by not assenting to it. 
It's not enough to just give passive assent, like saying that there's a city named Houston. That doesn't have any real practical consequences if I don't believe it's there. Or even something as fundamental, two plus two equals four. Well, I don't know about that. I think maybe it equals five. That might cause some problems for you, but ultimately it's not of everlasting importance. The point is we believe a lot of things in the sense of mental assent, intellectual acceptance. That's not all that faith is. It's not enough to just say, as we read here a moment ago in John 3.16, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's required. It's necessary, but it's not sufficient. That's not biblical faith. That's not the faith of Abraham. Faith involves something more. Of those things that we assent to, there are some things, secondly, that we place our trust in. Faith involves trust. Trust is confidence. Trust is taking someone at their word. When you say, I trust someone, that means that you have complete and total confidence in them. They'll do what they say. In that light, passages like Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 are even more significant. Paul says there, by grace are you saved by faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Salvation is a gift. The only way to receive any gift is in grateful, trusting acceptance. Trusting that person who's giving you that gift. It's not an arbitrary condition. It's the only way to take what God offers. I like the way that the Swiss theologian Karl Barth once described faith. He says, faith is holding in spite of all that contradicts it once and for all exclusively and entirely to God's promise and guidance. We see that exhibited in the life of Abraham, don't we? Listen to what the Hebrews writer says about Abraham's life. Hebrews chapter 11, this great hall of fame of heroes of faith. He says there, beginning in verse number 8, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age since she promised him faith, considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Verse 17, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be blessed. The writer here focuses on the same three episodes that we did earlier by faith. The, the call to leave his homeland, the promise of a son, and then testing Abraham by telling him to offer up that only son. And what we see is that trust in God is committing to him exclusively and entirely. Abraham answered that call to leave behind his friends, his family, his homeland. He wasn't swayed by any other loyalties. His loyalty was only to God. And he did that in spite of everything that contradicted it. And there was a lot to contradict it. That's why we chose this image today of the, the boat here in the fog and the choppy waters. 
Abraham could have seen a lot to contradict his trust in God. There was his age. There was Sarah's barrenness. He was 75 years old when God called him out. He was almost 100 when God promised him a son. But instead of being incredulous, Abraham trusted that God could do what he said he was going to do. And beyond that, once he committed to God, his loyalty was exclusive. It was entire. He didn't waver. He didn't think about other loyalties. He demonstrated that in the sacrifice of Isaac in chapter 22 that we read earlier. Once he started to follow God, he committed to following him all of the way, no matter what. However hard he found it to understand God's command, however difficult that was, he'd made the decision long before that he was going to do God's will. Of course, a person can express that kind of trust, that kind of faith in things other than the God of the Bible. You can put that sort of trust in other gods, other religions. You could put it in secular philosophy. You could put it, I see this unfortunately sometimes even among Christians, you could put that sort of trust, that ultimate trust in the government. To distinguish biblical saving faith, one more element is needed. And that is obedience. Faith involves obedience. To put it another way, faith involves faithfulness. You can actually translate the word in the Greek the same way. Faith, faithfulness, exact same word. Our faith is based on the faithfulness of God, that he's kept his promises. And if we're going to keep faith with him, we're going to be faithful. We're going to obey him. Faith and obedience are often linked in the Bible. Paul talks about at the beginning and the end of Romans, the obedience of faith. That is the obedience that flows from the faith we have in God. From the biblical perspective, faith and obedience are linked. There's no such thing in Scripture as a disobedient faith, a faith that doesn't obey, a faith that doesn't follow God. We could think, just to give you one example, a passage like John chapter 3, verse number 36. Jesus says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on it. You see that? Whoever believes versus whoever does not obey. The opposite of belief isn't unbelief. It's expressed here as disobedience. Faith equals obedience. Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 30, provides us a good example of that. Writer says, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell after they'd been encircled for seven days. The walls didn't fall because Joshua was some sort of uh, prototypical acoustic engineer who figured out the resonant frequency of the walls and they fell down. They didn't fall because of anything humans did, ultimately. They fell because it was God's free gift. But what if Joshua and the rest of the people had been like some in the world today. Well, God promised to give us this. We'll just wait for him to do it. Well, their bones would have bleached in the desert waiting for those walls to fall because God had attached conditions to his gift. Faith was the reason that they fell, but God acted and gave them that gift in response to their obedience. Here's the point of our lesson this morning. Go back to John 3, 16. Scripture we all know. Jesus says that God's love for the world 
prompted him to come into the world so that those who believe in him might be saved, might have everlasting life. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? It means to mentally assent to the truth about who he is, that he is the Son of God. Yeah, sure. But it also means to trust him exclusively and entirely. Nothing else, no one else, not even ourselves. And it means to be obedient, to be faithful as a consequence. That's the faith that we see exhibited in Abraham. And it's the faith that we have to have if we want to be Abraham's spiritual descendants. We are indeed saved by faith, that is by trust. But that's not trust in the goodness of our own works, how many attaboys I can get from God. It's not trust in faith itself, as I see some in the religious world seeming to believe. It's not trust in our baptism, as we might be likely to believe sometimes. It's not trust even in the Bible. Our trust is in a person. It's trust in Jesus Christ. If you've never been faithful to Him, obedient to Him, I want to urge you to put your trust in Him this morning. To turn to God in repentance and to be buried with the Lord in baptism. Have your sins washed away. Have that great promise of eternal life. Maybe you're here this morning. You already are a Christian. You did that at one point, but you haven't continued to keep the faith with Him. You need to make changes in your life. Whatever your particular need may be, if we can help you in any way, it's the Lord's invitation while we stand and sing.